at GBQ. We're always counting. Now we're making your time count with this episode of Empower Hour. Start the clock. The nationally renowned chef BJ Lieberman of Chapman's Eats joins us. Welcome, BJ. Thank you for having me. And I think the nationally renowned is fair because of the attention you got in, in the New York Times. It's funny. I, I always feel surprised when someone outside of like German Village has heard of our restaurant. But I suppose you're right that the New York Times is a national publication. So <laughs> we can be technical about it. There you go. I had a wrestling coach that always said that whatever the hardware was, as long as you come back with hardware. And I would count that as hardware. So <laughs> you're the first restaurant owner and chef to join us. You've got three concepts, Chapman's Eats, which was kind of the, the beginning piece, Ginger Rabbit, Harath. Am I pronouncing that correct? You can pronounce it any way that you want. That's kind of the fun with the name, but uh, it's a Welsh term that's technically pronounced Hiraith, but I normally say Hiraith because that's how it phonetically looks. You walk around saying Hiraith, people are like, what? what did you just so say? we'll go through each concept, um, but you know, Columbus is better for the fact you moved back here from D.C., back to Ohio. What brought you back? Well, my wife is from here. So we've been together for about 15 years. So I've been coming to Columbus or at least the Columbus area for 15 years. We met when I was living in Charleston, South Carolina, before I even started cooking, actually, before I went to culinary school. I've always liked Columbus, but her family lives all in the suburbs. So we would normally come for like Christmas and have to go to aunt and uncle's house in Worthington and then up to Centerburg and then Delaware. And then so it was a lot of years before I actually like saw Columbus and I'll never forget. It was probably like 2015 that my wife Brahman was like, there's this amazing place I want to take you called Katzinger's Deli. It's a Jewish style deli downtown Columbus. And I was like, why, why have you been holding back on a Jewish deli from me for all these years? <laughs> we went down to German village and got Katzinger's and I'd never been in German village before. And I was kind of like Eureka, like, this is a really cool part of town that I've never seen before. And then we went and had lunch. We took Katzinger's and had lunch on the Sayota Mile. And I was like, this is gorgeous. How does like how does all this stuff exist here in Columbus? And I'm just now finding out about this. And that was kind of the spark that was like, all right, well, there's got to be other neighborhoods to explore. There's got to be other parts of the city. You know, the Katzinger's, I can't remember the first time I've had it because it's, it's quite a Columbus institution. I think it was probably mm-hmm. 30 years ago. And it, it's tough when you go in there because they've got a Reuben and then I think like 70 versions of, of the Reuben. And it's like, yeah, I always pick the classic Reuben because it's such a great, a great place. Me too. The, the smoked white fish sandwich on rye is pretty spectacular. And they were out of it during the pandemic when we were building Chapman's. We would go to Katzinger's a lot during the, the pandemic. So it was right down the street from Chapman's when we were under construction. They, at some point, they ran out of the white fish sandwich. I was like devastated for like eight months. And then they got it back. So that's my go-to there. You came to Columbus and saw a, a different version of it, the non-suburb version, kind of fell in love with it and decided to come back and attracted to German villages, which is where Chapman's is. Yeah. So it's kind of a funny story. Um, I was a part of a restaurant group in Washington, D.C. My best friend, Aaron Silverman's restaurant group, I helped him open his first restaurant, Rose's Luxury. And then we opened a second restaurant called Pineapple and Pearls. And then we opened a third restaurant called Little Pearl. And it was kind of like we moved to DC and we blinked and seven years had passed. And I helped to open three restaurants. I kind of woke up in the middle of the night one night and was like, I am ready to do my own thing. Like, I'm ready. And I literally shook Brown awake at 2 a.m. and was like, uh, I think we need to leave DC. And she was like, why? And I was like, because I want to open a restaurant. And I don't want to do it here. She's like, can we talk about this tomorrow? <laughs> so I started uh, covertly flying 
all around. Like I would leave at like 6 a.m. and go to Chicago and meet with a restaurant broker and see like 30 spots and then fly back to D.C. at noon and go to work at one. And no one was any the wiser that I was kind of looking. And I was doing that with Columbus, too. And I probably saw, geez, 50, 60, 70 restaurants. I was really close to negotiating on one in Marion Village at one point. It fell through at the 11th hour. So we were looking for a little while when the opportunity to do Chapman's Eat Market came about. I mean, that building is really historic. It's the original Max and Irma's. I have a real thing for history. So taking something that meant something to the neighborhood meant a lot to me. At first, the landlord was talking to me about just taking it for six months and kind of doing like a pop-up there. But the decor, everything, I was like, I can't do what I want to do here. And it was Brahman who was like, well, what if we just actually make this a, a restaurant? Like, what if we take it? And I started looking around. And I was like, well, if this became that and this was like that, like, yeah, we could do this. And I love German Village so much. And and that made, that restaurant space is kind of perfectly just on third and the corner of Frankfurt, like right in the heart of German Village, two blocks north of uh, Schiller Park. And couldn't have asked for a better location. The building is quirky like we are. And uh, if you stand across the street on the other corner and look, it's almost like the postcard of what you would imagine a, a neighborhood restaurant would look like. Yeah, exactly. And like a lot of people have actually painted our space from across the street. And a lot of people give us copies of those paintings. So I have at least three of them of different people having painted the building because it literally is like an iconic view of what what a neighborhood restaurant looks like. Yeah, like that could be on the corner in New York City. It could be on the corner in L.A. Like it's, it's Charleston. I mean, the German village is very Charleston reminiscent for me. So Georgetown, D.C., like it's so yeah. wild. It really is just like a prototypical like corner spot. So uh, knowing the timeline, this is all it's what 2019, 2020. So you're going to come to Columbus, you're going to open a restaurant and then boom, the pandemic hits. What was that like? Yeah, we moved here in September of 2019 and we signed the lease for Chapman's in March of 2020. Like literally kind of the start of the pandemic for me, like as far as Americans are concerned, is the Rudy Gobert game in the NBA where all of a sudden the NBA like shut down and people were like, oh, like this is a thing. That was, I think, four days after we signed the lease for Chapman's that the Rudy Gobert game happened. And I was like, oh, like this is going to be a thing. And I remember we were talking to our landlord about it and we we're, and he was like, yeah, you know, it sounds like this is going to be a month or two and then everything will be better. So if you do construction now, you know, you'll get open in June, July. And like, by then everything will be better. And like, I remember having the same thoughts, like, yeah, you know, everyone, all the guidance is like shut down for a month, et cetera, et cetera. So we were kind of like naively going through building the restaurant at that point. Uh, my managers are mostly from out of state. Two of them had to sell homes to come here. So like there was no way that I wasn't opening the restaurant. But as we got closer, it became more and more apparent that if we were allowed to open at all, that it would only be for takeout food. Like there was not going to be any indoor dining at that point. And that wasn't the whole goal with Chapman's at all. So we kind of had to pivot on a dime of like, what are we going to do that goes in a to-go box that speaks to who we are as chefs and, and and a restaurateur of like, how do we make people feel the love when we don't get to have that hospitable interaction with them? It's like the first time that they're seeing us is when they open up a, a plastic container. Like, like, how do we, how do we show them who we are through that medium? So we pivoted on a lot of things. We got branded ice cream pints. We got wrapping paper that had like our logo on it to put around a burger that we never had any intentions of doing a burger. 
and that kind of became a thing during the pandemic that people fell in love with. So that was nice. And yeah, it was a really interesting thought experiment. If I can go on a tangent for two seconds, kind of an informative thing of that was I was doing paint samples on the walls of Chapman's to figure out what color we were going to do. And we were between Benjamin Moore and Sherwin-Williams for the two paint colors. And and uh, there's two different stores that sell those. There's a Sherwin-Williams store in German Village that's just steps away from Chapman's. And then there's Creative Paints out in Bexley. And you weren't allowed to go into the stores at that point. So I'd have to call, tell them exactly what paint swatch I wanted. And then they'd bring it out to your car for you. I'm not going to say which one, <laughs> but one of them was very terse on the phone, not very helpful at all. And the other one was like so warm, like, hey, have you ever done this before? No. All right. These are all the things you're going to want. You're going to want these paintbrushes, whatever. Do you want me to add that to your box for you? Like, yes. And could not have been any warmer with the interaction. It actually made me prefer one of the paint colors over another one because of a phone interaction that I had with them. And that was really informative for me opening Chapman's where we couldn't have interaction with people of like, how do we show them that hospitality when we can't do the things that restaurants do to show hospitality? So we had a lot of long conversations about like how we would answer the phone, what our website interaction would look like, how we would package the to-go boxes to make people smile when they open them up, like all those things. So it was a very interesting thought experiment going into opening a restaurant in the middle of the pandemic. When I've been to two of the three restaurants, and in both cases, the staff was exactly what you described from the paint company, incredibly welcoming. Oddly enough, the first time I went, I went with friends and their daughter had gone to school with your waitress. And then um, I went to, I'm going to butcher it again, Herath. Herath, you were so close, Herath. Herath, Herath. <laughs> it turns out the waiter had gone to high school with my son. So kind of small world thing, but the care and concern that those both those concepts has been just what you described the care about your experience not so much your i've got to clear that i got to clear the table there's there's you know a table turn on that's more important that's just not the experience at your restaurants well it's funny because the table turn is extremely important like we're still working in the same restaurant economy as everyone else but i feel like there's a kind way and a transparent way to do it you know the normal the the making the sausage restaurant moments where it's like you know we need to turn tables we don't do coffee that's a weird thing that Finer restaurants don't do. We need to charge what we need to charge to cover food costs. And I feel like the big equalizer is having staff who are, you know, bought into the concept, but also a part of the fabric of the restaurant. I feel like a lot of restaurants treat their servers like they're hired guns or something like that. And that's not that's not accurate. Like we don't have any front of the house versus back of the house or like bartenders versus servers or anything like that. We're all one team, one dream kind of thing. And it takes a long time to foster that. And it takes the right kind of people and making a few mistakes to kind of build that that team. And we were lucky with Chapman's in a way opening during the pandemic because we kind of opened without any hourly staff. It was just the managers and a few cooks. And that was it. And as we got busier, we would add an hourly employee. And as we were finally allowed to do indoor dining, we added a bartender, we added another server. So we were able to be very selective and build the team one at a time. So we went from like a staff of eight when we opened to now, I think 35 or something like that. And we literally built it just one at a time, one at a time. So we were really able to, to be picky and choosy about the right people coming in who understood what it is that we were doing. We've had very little staff turnover considering that we've been open for three years now, there's still people who were on the original team who are who are still with us, which is crazy for, for a restaurant. And then Hiraith was a different experience altogether because we had to put that team together all at once. So like, how do you get, you know, again, 35 people, 30 people all on the same page that quickly 
of like what it is that we're trying to do. And I think that that's probably been our biggest struggle at Hereif is making sure that the vision is clearly communicated, but it's not even like a communication thing. It's like a feeling thing. It's like you need to feel that that you're doing the right thing. And I think that our servers are very close to where we want them of like really getting it. But we've had three weeks of pretty intense training of like break these habits. Like you're allowed to be yourself here. The pomp and circumstance can go out the window. Your job is to make people happy. Yes, this is fine dining, but like make people happy. Well, I was going to walk through each of the properties, but this is the perfect segue. You've got a 3% fee that you add to each bill because you believe in taking care of your employees. And that's got to certainly contribute to that. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing that we do that is becoming more common in restaurants. And the impetus of it is we want to offer health insurance to our staff. Pretty simple, (laughs) but that's extremely expensive. And we kind of had a proposition to consider where it's like, all right, do we just kind of add a dollar to like a handful of menu items that we sell a lot of and kind of like in the aggregate make up this money that we're essentially adding to our bottom line? Or should we be transparent about it and tell people like, hey, we're going to add on this fee dollar for dollar. It's going to go directly to taking care of our staff. And, you know, I I feel like a lot of people want to vote with their money for restaurants that are doing the right things and taking care of their team. If it was just an extra dollar on everything, like we're not trying to virtue signal or anything, but if it was just an extra dollar on everything, then like people wouldn't necessarily know where that money's going. I feel like it's important to be transparent about that stuff. And it's also optional. If you want to take the 3% off, like you're automatically opted into it. But if you want to opt out, we take the 3% off. It happens sometimes where people are like, yeah, that's not my prerogative to pay for your team's insurance. And I'm like, okay, cool. It doesn't have to be. Well, and it didn't feel like virtue signaling to me at all. I think when businesses talk about how they take care of their employees, being that employees in every business, the ones that really fuel the growth of the business are so hard. good ones are so hard to find that to put it out there like that. I mean, it was something I noticed. I'm sure others notice it as well. Again, the service has been fantastic at both of the properties. So let's go back to Chapman. So let's talk about Chapman's. I'll start with a myth. We've talked before. I can't possibly ever get into Chapman's myth. Explain that. Well, total myth for a few different reasons. Number one is for a while there, right after the New York Times article came out, we were very, very busy. We would, So we do something interesting with our reservations where we release the entire month of reservations, to say it more plainly. It's about to be September 1st, all of October. October 1st through October 31st, we'll go up all at one time at 10 a.m. on September 1st. So if you want to get into Chapman's in October, literally, if you sign online on September 1st, any time of day, it can be noon, it can be whatever, they don't go that quickly. You can have your pick of any date. Obviously, like seven o'clock on Fridays and Saturdays fill up the quickest for the entire month. And then it kind of backfills where by the 5th, 6th, 7th of September, it might be a little slim pickings. But, you know, like a lot of things, there's a lot of turnover with reservations. So right now, like if you wanted to come in tonight at Chapman's, I guarantee there's reservations open. I guarantee there's five o'clock and nine o'clock, which might not be your preferred dining time. But I'll guarantee on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that there will be open tables for you to snag. Another thing to do is our bar and our patio, when the weather permits, are both walk-in only. So a lot of people in the neighborhood know that. They'll give a call to the host in and say, like, hey, are there bar seats? And if the answer is yes, they'll be, all right, I'll be there in five minutes. It's like, cool. So calling before you walk in is always a good move. And, you know, the hosts are happy to tell you if we're on a wait, whatever. 
And then thing number three is if the reservations are full for the night, you can go on a notify list where if anyone drops their reservation, it automatically emails you. There is a lot of turnover with the reservations. A lot of times they get snagged right back up again. So if a four top drops off for whatever reason and it goes back out into the wild, everyone will get an email and it gets snagged right back up again. So there are like multiple different ways to get in. But honestly, we're not as busy as we were a year ago at this time. We're still busy. And getting a reservation at seven o'clock on a Friday and Saturday is still difficult. But really, you can come like any night of the week. It's funny because that's been like the first thing that I hear from a lot of people is like, oh, I'd come to your restaurant if I could get in. I'm like, literally, you can go tonight. Like, <laughs> I can go on my phone right now and make your reservation or you can go on your phone and make a reservation like you can go tonight. You just just Yogi Berra had a line that place is so was that place is so busy. Nobody goes anymore or that place is so popular. Nobody goes anymore. That that's how I feel we are right now where people like don't even try to make a reservation because they feel like they can. It's like, yes, you absolutely can. Well, when I met you at Hiroth, you, you had mentioned that we were talking. And so I wanted to bust that myth. Talk about Chapman's Eats a little bit, the concept. It was it, obviously from what you said, it comes from the heart, but it seems like hearts because some of your managers, it sounds like contributed. So if I come in there again, what's on the menu? What kind of food am I going to be able to enjoy? Chapman's was always set up as a collaborative space. I realized a long time ago in my cooking career that I was sick of my own food. I feel like I was kind of just like regurgitating the same ideas over and over again. And I started to have way more fun talking to other people, my cooks, my sous chefs, and kind of figuring out like what they're excited about right now, what's banging around in their head and try to get those thoughts out onto a plate. So the last few years I was in DC, that's how I spent a lot of my time was teaching, helping people craft thoughts that they were having into things that would translate into a dish. And like, I would never take credit for the dishes because I saw how much pride it gave people to put something on the menu that made people happy. And when we decided we wanted to open Chapman's, I really wanted that to be my role in the restaurant was to facilitate for other people to make them proud. And I also figured that was going to be like the truest sense of like hospitality and love is like, if everybody's allowed to put their grandparents' dishes on the menu or things that they've picked up in their travels or their, you know, food of their homeland or like whatever it is, that's going to be better than me just being like, oh, I have an idea for another summer corn soup, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> so that was the idea. What I like to say is the menu is like holding a mirror up to the kitchen at Chapman. So I haven't really put a dish on the menu there in over a year. I've helped craft a few things where people will come to me with an idea and be like, hey, this isn't quite working. Or, hey, can you taste this? Like, what are your thoughts? And I'm like, have you thought about not doing those as baked beans, but doing it as a cold bean salad? Because I feel like that push and pull between the hot and cold that you're dealing with here would be nice. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, let me. But like, I don't do it. I'm not the one going in there, like making the salad. So it's still theirs. It was kind of just like a little nudge in a different direction. And I value spending my time like that more than I do with a knife in my hand or or uh, sweating over a saute pan these days. So Chapman's was first and then Ginger Rabbit, which is a very different concept. Very different. You said that the music, music makes Ginger Rabbit, not so much the food. We should talk about that. Yeah, I mean, Ginger Rabbit uh, has been like kind of an organic growth situation because we had an idea of what we wanted that place to be. And kind of we had what we like to call our come to Jesus moment about a year in where we were like, all right, let's reevaluate what it is that we think we are versus what we actually are, because I feel like we're doing a poor job communicating it to the public of what we are. So when we opened, it was going to be a jazz lounge. The spirit we were going to focus on was gin, very like speakeasy 
vibes. We wanted to transport people to like 1940s New York City kind of thing. And then for the food, we really wanted to focus on tin fish because we didn't really have a kitchen there. And I'd been getting into conservas for the last few years and had found some really high quality ones that I wanted to share with the public. We have access to them here. It's very easy to order them. You really just need good bread, good butter, some greens, a lemon and good tin fish. And like, I'm happy to make a meal out of that. So that was our original concept was those were the things we were going to focus on. We did have like a local charcuterie board. We had a local cheese board, those sorts of things. But we really never built a full kitchen at Ginger Rabbit. As we went through time, we realized that people were coming probably more for the jazz than they were coming for what we were doing, which is fine. But that just wasn't how we had really been building the place. We'd been building it as a lounge to come and have snacks and drinks. And oh, yeah, there's going to be live music on. So when we realized that we were actually a live music venue, that definitely changed how we wanted to deal with the food, the drink, all that stuff as well. So we kind of pushed the food into the background a little bit. We realized the conservas weren't really selling. We did some more simple stuff like shrimp cocktail. We're doing a, uh, we call it fancy toast, but like homemade ricotta just on Dan the Baker bread with local peaches, prosciutto, just like a beautiful little like tartine, basically really simplify the food menu into things that people kind of crave a little bit more. But ultimately it's about the jazz, which is really cool because that's something that we don't control. Like we book the bands but it's up to their talent and their performance that night to kind of like make the evening. And I really dig that because it's like we just kind of set the stage. And it's it's a little bit like Chapman's in the way of like, we need to collaborate with each other to create this experience every night. But every night it's with a different band who's like going to bring a different energy. There's a big difference between New Orleans jazz, Brazilian samba, and like kind of the more like loungy, like Ella Fitzgerald jazz and like all three of those things can exist in our space on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And it's kind of a cool thing about it that you can come in and have a completely different experience three nights in a row there. And I I love it. It's my favorite place to hang out, whether I'm working or not working. I love Ginger Rabbit. Well, I confess it's not 500 yards from my house. So it's played in getting there. So let's move on to the last concept, which is even closer to my house. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time walking by trying to peek through the the paper on the windows to figure out what the heck was going on on in there. Why don't you explain that concept? Because it's just, of the three, that's the one I fell in love with the most. And maybe it's that earthy, hearth-based food that I, that's really you know, speaking to me more than, than what Chapman's does. Not that Chapman's was bad. It was just, just the hurrah was a wow. Yeah, the open dining room definitely does that. And as you alluded to, the upstairs of the restaurant, what you can see from ground level is literally only about a third of the restaurant. It's 1,500 square feet on the ground level. That's very light and airy. The ceilings are painted blue, terrazzo tile. It's very evocative of the time that I spent in Greece. But if you're um, into plants, some of the coolest plants you'll see. Yeah, our design team are also plant heads. So, you know, they designed the restaurant architecturally from the beginning. But then we also have install week, which was actually like install three weeks where they were in there hanging all the art and then going to Oakland nursery and a bunch of other places to get all the plants that went in there. So I need to develop a green thumb at some point to make sure I keep those alive for <laughs> the duration. I've been promised they just need to be watered so I can do that. But speaking to the hearth, the landlord actually had the vision for that before they ever knew that we were going to be the tenant and they wanted that to be a wood fired concept. So they built a massive hood shaft that's insulated. There's a very, very specific and expensive thing you need to do if you're going to cook with solid fuel is what it's called when you cook with wood. So 
not only that, but it's in the basement of a four-story apartment building. So they had to run this crazy heavy-duty shaft from the basement where the art kitchen is all the way out to the roof. And they had the foresight to do that before they built the apartments above it. So they always wanted this to be a wood-fired concept. I was just lucky enough to be the one who signed the lease there. And, you know, there's a lot of different wood-fired apparatuses that you could do. We could have done the wood-fired like pizza oven type deal. We could have just done some loose grills. But we really thought the idea of cooking on a hearth was going to be kind of like the most hospitable, but also like the best show because the kitchen's wide open. It's like you want to see that fire. You want to smell the smoke. And like the hearth is just wide open. It's a brick square basically for us to cook in that we retrofitted in or grills by dement retrofitted in some grills some smoke boxes stuff like that like the whole kitchen is completely mutable in that way we can move things from left to right right to left but the biggest thing is we light two huge fires in there every day and just cook stuff over it so well part of my walk-bys were how in the world is that going to be a big enough restaurant to you know survive how are they gonna make any money and then when i came for my first time the basement, you actually come down this um, flight of steps. And as you, you come down, it opens up. It's dark. It's got kind of this cool Las Vegas feel to it. And the hearth is right there. Um, we weren't fortunate enough to get front row seats, but we were able to see the, the action in the kitchen from where we sat. And that was fun. It gave us something to talk about. And it was, I don't know, securing to watch your food being cooked. You know what's going on exactly. That was just quite the experience from the, the first you know steps down the staircase to the whole meal. Yeah, that moment of coming down the stairs and the space opening up was very intentional. The upstairs, when we got it, was a big rectangle as well. And we really wanted to build in some mystery to it. So you couldn't just see the whole first floor all at once. So when you walk in, depending on where you're seated, you're kind of brought like through some blind corridors where you're like, where, like, where am I in space right now? And then when you go downstairs, you're brought through that narrow hallway, then you make a hard right, and then you go down the stairs, and the stairs have a very low ceiling to it, so you really can't see what you're walking down into. And then there's the reveal moment where you get down to the bottom of the stairs, and you can see the entire dining room, you can see the entire kitchen, and that was a very intentional thing that the design team and I worked on to make that moment really, really, really special. I feel like they succeeded at it. The restaurant's actually even nicer than I had ever anticipated it being i love that the fact that we're able to do that i love that you compared it to las vegas too because i always have a joke that it's like we're in a casino there's no clocks there's no windows you never know what time it is until you step outside and i've been surprised before when i've gone upstairs during service i'm like oh my god the sun's still out like (laughs) (laughs) well you've blocked the windows off i mean you that's that's been intentional as well yeah we we wanted it to feel like you're in a different world and if the you can tell what time of day it is i feel like that that ruins it a little bit. Also, like I have a thing about like going out to eat at like 5 p.m. where it always feels like you're like, I don't know, like intruding on the restaurant when you shouldn't be there. Like when it's just pure daylight outside, it always feels weird to me. So the fact that entire basement feels exactly the same, whether it's 5 p.m. or midnight is like kind of a cool thing to me that you can come down and like be in our world pretty much immediately. To bust another myth, I live in Italian village. Parking is extremely close. In fact, it's it literally in the same building. So <laughs> the, the parking myth is not a block. You're going and trying her ass out. And it's the same deal with the with the reservations, though. Living just a few doors down, I've been able to tell that any night of the week I want to go grab a bite, it's going to be easy peasy for me to do that. So I encourage everybody to give it a try. 
Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It's so funny. I've in DC, it was never a thing. Like if you were going to a restaurant, you just Ubered. Like nobody drove to restaurants. I understand Columbus is a very different city, but the fact that when people find out that I have a restaurant, their first it's never what food do you cook? It's never like where are you located? It's do you have parking? And I'm like, why is that the first question that everyone asks? But we are attached to a parking garage. Literally, it's the same building. So um that parking garage is never at full capacity. It's not an expensive parking garage. It's right in the short north. It's great. I highly recommend that our visitors park there, keep the street parking for our neighbors. That would be lovely. Yeah. And then for Chapman's Eat Market, the parking on the street in front of the restaurant is free. It's not metered. So people can get in there. I moved down down into the urban uh, in the Italian village from the suburbs just a few years ago. And I think we all, Columbus is so suburban oriented, but it is this urban, I, I visit visit other big cities for work and come back and I'm just kind of wowed by what's available in Columbus. But I think we've still got this suburban orientation. So that makes for that, you know, I'm not going to Uber two miles. I'm going to drive that. That's still a part of who we are. Yeah, totally. Look, I get it, but it's just way different than my experience in DC where it's like, whatever you do before you step through our doors is your business. Like, I'm not going to tell you where to park, but here's very different. A couple things about the menu, small plates. So Bring somebody that likes food and wants to share with you. I had no fights with my son, but we uh, scored scored the dishes and we all had different favorites. So that's number one, bring somebody that likes food to share with. Number two, there were three desserts on the menu that night. The creme brulee is the only one you want to order because that was just <laughs> off the hook fantastic. And then the third thing, and I told BJ this when I met him at the restaurant, that it seemed like the menu was huge because we couldn't order everything, but it's actually a very small accessible menu. There's something on it for everybody. Um, I just uh, have to go back and finish finish checking all the boxes and try everything. I love that. That's part of the point of the restaurant is here Eighth is about a feeling of longing. So that like what the Welsh term, it literally means a feeling of longing. And we want people to long for what it is that we're doing when they're not there. And to satisfy their feeling of here Eighth, they have to come back and see us. I will push back on the creme brulee a little bit. It's a fantastic dessert. Well, there's only three on the re- on the menu, so they all got to be good. The kakagori is by far my favorite. I think that that is one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted in my well, life. I'm going to try it next time I come. So <laughs> I'm going to work through the whole the whole menu. Shifted gears a little bit. A lot of what we've talked about today is about creativity and about how you create, how you facilitate creativity. You know, you measure a restaurant business by the quality of the food and and the service, but it's a business. And so what's your aspiration? Is it more creative? Is it more business oriented? Where do you want to go with this? Three concepts in such a short time got to really be pushed in the creative envelope. What's next? I like to say that I don't have a chill button. I don't have like a mode, sit back and relax. So I can't even think about what what we're going to do next. But I know that the, like the moment that I feel settled with this is when the the angstiness to like get something else moving is going to hit me. So. Uh, Even if it's 2 a.m. in the morning and you have to wake your wife up to tell her about it. Literally, those things happen often where like I have my best like realizations when I'm sleeping. It's happened a whole bunch of times with Hirath, with plans that we had made with the restaurant. For instance, we were going to do a tasting menu at the restaurant. We even did a whole day of soft opening where we did just the tasting menu. And after that night, something was like rubbing me wrong about it. And like the food was great and it actually went extremely smoothly. And I couldn't figure out why... I was upset about the tasting menu and like at 2 a.m. it hit me 
And I woke up and I almost called our director of ops to like tell her like we shouldn't do the tasting menu. And I was like, it's 2 a.m. I can just wait until tomorrow. But I don't know why, like when I was sleeping, it just like all hit me. The thing about it, if you're wondering, is the tasting menu was awesome, but the space it was requiring to do the courses was taking up like half of the kitchen. I was like, how are we going to serve a la carte menu and this at the same time? So we need to pick a lane. And I was like, I'd rather go with the a la carte menu now than the than the tasting menu. Don't get me wrong. The tasting menu was awesome. It was going to be really, really, really special. I just don't think that we would have been able to execute it and our a la carte menu at the level that we wanted to. So it was literally like 2 a.m. And I came into work the next day with almost no sleep. and was like, guys, I hate to say this. I know we put a lot of work into it. We purchased a lot of plates and bowls specifically for this menu, but I don't think we should do the tasting menu. And everyone was like, uh, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're going to take something off of our plates? Thank you very much. So, well, From my standpoint, we had fun choosing because you couldn't yeah. choose everything. And, and that a la carte approach was fantastic. I'm really happy with the a la carte. I don't think that playing it safe is the right term, but we definitely held back some ambition on the menu for right now because we needed to learn how to use the hearth. We need to be able to train our team, et cetera. We're probably about a week away from really starting to R&D like menu 2.0. And I think that we can push a lot harder on a lot of things now that we know how to execute the basics, like literally just learning how to roast a simple piece of meat with salt and black pepper is hard enough on that thing. So now kind of like shifting into like, all right, now we're going to glaze something continually while it's on there is going to be a whole other like touch feel thing that we need to do with that hearth. But we're, I think we're ready to roll into that, roll into some harder prep tests, roll into some more tweezery food isn't the word that I'm looking for, but just a little bit more like haute cuisine. Like I feel like everything is very simple. And I think that a lot of things do need to be simple because of the apparatus that we're using and simplicity is fine. But I do think that we have the ability to do a little bit more higher end touches on a few things. Like we don't have any caviar, foie gras, anything like that, wagyu steak, like none of that in house right now. And I think lobster, we have no shellfish on the menu, actually. It's crazy. So I think that we have the ability to do a lot of those things as we move into like 2.0. Well, as a chef, it may feel simple, but the flavors weren't simple out of, out at the table. We argued about what the best was and the, we got one of the salads, which is crazy that think that me as a meat lover would argue that the the bowl of lettuce, which it was not just a bowl of lettuce. The salad was... No, it's incredible. It's an incredible and then, salad. Um, and then the chicken, the the skewer, there was quite a bit of flavor. It just the depth of flavor mm-hmm. in, that, in that choice was fantastic. And there was nothing bad. Which plate's number one, not who are we going to take off the list or what are we going to take off the list? So I had a fantastic experience. My son did as well. Shifting gears, time for the final countdown. What did you dream of becoming when you were in middle school? A hockey player, for sure. Uh, I love the New York Rangers, and I played hockey pretty much from, what, 1993 up through college. So I, I really loved hockey. Got too many concussions and also wasn't good, so never made the NHL. The middle school athlete admitting they're not good enough for professionals is a rite of passage for a lot of us. Who inspires you? That's interesting. I find inspiration from a lot of things in a lot of places. I think that if I had to choose a person that inspired me right now, I'd probably choose my brother. He's in a very, very different industry than I am, home remodeling, actually. But he's found himself in a situation where he has a lot of people who work for him and a lot of people who look up to him. And he has to run training meetings for like hundreds of people. And he always needs to find ways to inspire his team and I spend a lot of time talking to him about team building and 
tools for motivation and and all that stuff. And I just really love his outlook on how to do these things. And it, he's my little brother, but also like my mentor in some ways. So yeah, I would say my brother really inspires me right now as far as the like professional team building thing goes. As far as food, my old food mentor who has kind of come into his own recently, Sean Brock, what he's doing down in Nashville is just very, very inspiring to me, not just from a food standpoint, but taking care of his team, putting the team first. I'm really proud of him. And I'm really impressed with the steps that he's taken in his career lately to be just an awesome human being and an awesome boss and an awesome chef. What is your favorite life hack? I'm definitely very technology driven. We have like all the lights that can turn on automatically and off automatically at the restaurants and all that stuff. However, I think that I'm a more of a lo-fi, like practical person. So I agree with like relaxing on your day off and all those things. For me, it's an equal split between doing family time things that my wife wants to do. You know, on my day off, all that I want to do is like charge the battery, but you st- I still need to put energy into things with the family. So going on walks, doing things that that keep the family happy, but then also having like my alone time. So I think that my biggest life hack is just being honest about what you need in a moment and also taking feedback as well. So like my wife and I will have a kind of like, what can I do for you today? And also what do you need today? Or like what I need today? So I'll be like, I really need an hour of laying in bed and doing nothing before I get up today. And then I'm yours for the rest of the afternoon kind of thing. So my life hack is honesty and, you know, empathy with the people who are in charge of your home life. Um, well, to be fair, BJ, when, when I was there, it was, I think we were there at 7.30 or 8 o'clock on a, on a Friday night. You were right there in the thick of it. So when we're all relaxing, you're working. Yeah. I mean, right now is a particularly tough time for me um, with the three restaurants. And then the fact that I'm actually working every single service right now, and I probably will for a while be there for every single one. Just there's a, a rhythm to a restaurant that you really need to get down before you can start stepping away at all. So my days have been crazy. Like, like really, I've been working. I know a lot of people say like, oh, I've been working like 80 hours a week. Like I've been working 14 hours a day, like six or seven days a week for a while. This last weekend was the first time that I took a whole day off where I didn't do anything. I didn't open my computer. It was the first time in a month that I had a whole day where I just didn't do work. And I don't know what's like seven times 12. That's like 90 hours. Like yeah. I've been doing like 80, 90 hours and you know, I, my wife is working full time too. So I have to take care of the kid and we have to do all these things and really just being honest with each other with where our time is. And it's like, all right, we're not going to have that much time of like us sitting on the couch and watching TV right now, because that's just not where we're at. But what are the important things we want to accomplish today? Like, that's what we'll concentrate on. You know, when I go to work today, I'm going to be gone for a really long time. So I'm trying to get in as much family time as we can before before we go in. I guess technically this counts as work, right? So well yeah. <laughs> What's been your most valuable failure? My most valuable failure. Jeez, I have a lot of failures. So it's it's hard to choose. Well actually I got a pretty good one. It was cooking related and I try to outthink everything I found as a sometimes an asset of mine, but also sometimes a, a cause of grief for other people where Sometimes the like work smarter, not harder thing is like a very big feeling of mine. And I was trying to, it was at Husk in Charleston. I was trying to candy some pecans that the method was they used a certain pot and you added a certain amount of pecans and you had to mix it a certain way. And I was thinking about, I'm like, 
the amount that I need to do today is going to legitimately take me an hour and a half of like literally standing over a pot over and over again, making batch after batch. I was like, what if I just get a bigger pot? And I did all the math and I was like, I'm going to just up this and just do it all once. And I thought I had such a great plan and I got it all started. And there were probably like $300 worth of pecans in this big pot. And I went to start stirring it and the whole thing seized up on me. And the spoon was literally sticking straight up. I couldn't get it to move any further. And my chef, Travis, who was very funny, walked by me at the time. He's like, man, you're going to need a silverback gorilla and a boat or if you want to stir that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, cool. And he was like, listen, man, we're not going to tell anyone about this. But that was like $300 worth of pecans. We'll like make an orgeat or something with it. But like, throw those away. Do it the right way. There's a reason why the method was written like this. Like, don't outsmart it. And I'm just like, cool. So, you know, sometimes you just need to put in the work. You can't outsmart every situation. It's the last question, but I think you've answered it. You work hard. How do you play to balance life? It's a little bit of relaxation and a lot of family time. Yeah, that and uh, golf, honestly. I never really played that much uh, when I was younger. I actually worked at a golf course when I lived in Charleston for about a year and just like never got better and never really enjoyed it. But I liked working at the golf course, being outdoors all day and, you know, working physically has never been a problem for me. So I really enjoyed that. And I played a bit back then. And then I legitimately didn't play for like 12 years. And it was during the pandemic. Um, my brother-in-law lives on a golf course up in Powell. You know, it was during shutdown times. You couldn't do anything. And he was like, hey, why don't you like come up and play? Like, it doesn't matter if you're good, bad, whatever. We're going to go walk around outside without masks on for four hours. I was like, okay. okay. And started, <laughs> yeah. And we started playing. And I, then, then we started doing it a lot where it was like, what are you doing today? Like nobody's working, you know, like I was building the restaurant, but it, it was still like moving at a snail's pace. So we were literally playing golf like two, three times a week. And I just fell in love with it. I still haven't gotten any better, but like, it really is good. Like turn your brain off time. I'm not a very competitive person with other people, but I'm very competitive with myself. So like the little steps of getting better at one thing or another with golf is like very, very Zen to me. And yeah, I'm not out there like, getting hammered on the on the golf course smoking cigars and stuff like it's a sober thing for me to do I, I i like playing in the morning before i go to work if i if i can be lucky enough to do it i haven't been able to do that in over two months but at the beginning of the spring i was literally going out at like 7 a.m playing a three-hour round and then going to work like very focused and refreshed for the day if i could still play hockey that would probably be that for me like i said too many concussions to risk going out there again luckily golf it's very hard to get a concussion so or at least it'll be quite a story if you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm capable of it. I've gotten concussions doing. BJ, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm sure if you're in there every night, I'm sure we'll see each other, other soon enough. I look very forward to that. Time's up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Empower Hour. Join us next time by subscribing to Empower Hour on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred listening platform. Want more GBQ? We don't blame you. Visit us online at gbq.com for the business news and advice that matters most. Who is empowering your growth?